Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my usual co-host, Amy Bird. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending <laughs> on your perspective, uh, Todd Pruitt is not able to be with us today. But we have a, a special guest on the program uh, in this edition to discuss with us a very important matter. Uh, his name is Ryan T. Anderson. He will no doubt be familiar to many listeners. He is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the founder and editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute, uh, which has been mentioned many, many times on this program. And if you don't subscribe to it, go to their website and get yourself a free subscription straight away. Ryan is the author of a number of important books. Uh, he co-authored with Robbie George and Sheriff Gergis, What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense, perhaps uh, the best defense of traditional marriage from a natural law perspective that there is. He also wrote Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. And more recently, uh, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And it's that book we want to talk to Ryan about today. Unfortunately, due to a minor computer glitch, we lost the first couple of minutes of our conversation. But we're now going to rejoin uh, the conversation between Ryan and ourselves at the point where Amy makes an extremely important observation about the way Ryan has set up uh, the transgender book. It was interesting to see how controversial your book became even before its official release. Uh, the Washington Post published a piece about the uproar that activists were causing on social media, and they were calling your work an inflammatory case against transgender people. And yet, in reading the book, one sees a real compassion for those who suffer with gender dysphoria, particularly in Chapter 3, where you have detransitioners telling their stories in their words, which, yeah. aren't, which aren't, you know, pretty. You know, it, it isn't something that maybe a lot of Christians would publish. It shows a lot of compassion for, for even those in the lesbian and homosexual communities and even the gender stereotyping that they feel caught in and, and just all the layered reasons for why they transitioned in the first place, but then how they feel betrayed by their own community yeah. in the medical field. Yeah, that was the hardest chapter to research and write, partly it's because the stories are so um, tragic. They're just really sad. Listening to many of the stories were told, um, YouTube videos, people who felt compelled to give their testimony, um, mm. what it was like to transition and to not have those transitioning therapies address their underlying psychosocial struggles and how actually detransitioning um, helped them re-identify yeah. with their body, re-identify uh, with physical reality. So, I mean, in that chapter, I really, I try to get out of the way. I mean, it's really just me transcribing mm. other people's YouTube videos um, to give them a larger audience to speak for themselves. Many of them won't agree with large parts of the book. I know many yeah, of them. Yeah, and you say that. 
yeah, they they don't necessarily agree with my prior work on same sex marriage. Some of them identify um, as lesbian, but I think it's important for people to hear from them in their own words, and also to hear how social conservatives have done things to make their lives worse. They mm-hmm. don't use words in saying frequently it's religious conservatives, the religious right, social conservatives who overemphasize sex stereotypes. And then if they don't fit into those overly rigid sex stereotypes, that can actually lead to some of their gender dysphoria. When social conservatives stigmatize Mm -hmm. people who identify as transgender, it makes it that much harder for them to kind of listen to anything else we have to say. So it's it's, it's important that we kind of do an examination of our own conscience and, and take seriously what our culpability is in some of these struggles. Points in an interesting direction, Ryan. One of the, the things that, that you do, and I think it's very good, you bring out the significance of, of embodiment and the body in these, these issues, that the body comes with a kind of authority. And yet, we're all aware that, that gender roles are somewhat socially constructed as well. I come from the UK, and the relationship of men and women in the UK is different, perhaps in subtle ways, but different to the the way it's being constructed in in the United States, and certainly the way be constructed in Africa or East Asia. How do you parse the the key question? It seems to me between gender as, for want of a better term, physical reality, and gender as social construct. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean that, that's a great question because. It's true that gender is partially a social construct. It's socially constructed, but it's not merely a social construct that, you know, properly understood sex is a bodily reality. Um, So our sexual embodiment as male or female is just a given. But then gender is how do we express our sexual embodiment? And you can go wrong in expressing your sexual embodiment in a variety of ways and entire cultures can go wrong. If, if cultures cultivate, uh, so a culture cultivates part of human nature, a sound culture is going to cultivate human nature in productive directions. And so the thing it's chapter seven, where I kind of go through some of the um, history of feminist thinking on these questions and some of the gender theory that underlies our transgender moment, I say you can go wrong in at least two different directions. And so on one hand, you can have overly rigid sex stereotypes which frequently have a whiff of kind of uh, patriarchy or kind of like male supremacy in which, you know, men should be doctors and women should be nurses. You know, men should take economics and women should take home economics and a variety of ways in which, which we can kind of have rigid gender roles. But then on the other extreme, you can just deny that there are any differences between the sexes. You can embrace a form of androgyny in which men and women are interchangeable, uh, in which there's no meaningful difference between boy and girl, man and woman, husband, wife, mother, father. And so what Brother, I believe sister. For that matter. All these relations are malleable. So what I say is that the the kind of virtuous mean, the Aristotelian mean between these two extremes, is a vision of gender that doesn't distort it, the stereotypes and the hierarchy, and doesn't deny it. Right? So you can distort on the one hand, you can deny on the other. But what you want to do is actually reveal the differences that make a difference and then communicate them towards productive goods. And so I I discussed two goods in particular, the goods of friendship and the goods of marriage. And our embodiment as male and female are going to make a difference. How we view friendships prior to marriage, especially all-boy 
friendships, all-girl friendships, co-ed friendships, those are going to look different, uh, and they should look different. A boys-only club like the Boy Scouts will look different than a a co-ed student group. Boys behave differently when they're just around each other than when they're in a co-ed setting. How this impacts our dating relationships, courtship relationships, then marriage itself, to my mind, is kind of the uh, focal instance of a human good where our sex nature is most relevant. The ability to unite as one flesh, as husband and wife, to then be mother and father. But then from that comes a whole host of ways in which this matters. I don't think everyone needs to adopt the rule that Mike Pence has, of you know not dining alone uh, with women or not drinking alone with women. But even after marriage, male friendships and co-ed friendships and female friendships and co-ed friendships, um, they should look different. I can have a relationship with some of my male friends in a way that I can't with some of my female friends right now. And that's just the reality of our embodiment and the nature of sexual desire and sexual attraction and marital relationships. And so that's where we need a healthy culture to cultivate those things. And so there are no like easy answers that you can just kind of like spew out, but thinking about where does our embodiment matter as sexed, where does our embodiment Mm -hmm. as sexed not matter? How does it matter? How can you go wrong in either extreme? Yeah, I think one of the the big issues um, that you're highlighting there, too, is this extreme stereotyping of gender differences. And it's such an odd contradiction because we see it happening in the transgender roles that are taken on. They take on these stereotypes of gender a lot of the time, which I would I don't understand because most women I know wouldn't want to look like a, a pinup model anyway, like let's say Jenner does in his cover picture. But at the same time, I almost feel like we downplay, even in our friendships, which are different between men and women, how we can uphold distinction in the sexes without being reductive to these stereotypes. And I really think the model of brother and sisterhood is a biblical and helpful way to understand how to view one another differently and distinctly without reducing us to just our sexual function or to stereotypes of our culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you hit on two really good points there, is that one, there's a lot of um, sex stereotyping going on within some of the transgender ideology. Um, So Mm -hmm. that if a boy plays with dolls, that's actually a diagnostic sign that he might be a girl trapped in a boy's body. The DS5 actually lists one of the diagnostic criteria being if a child plays with the opposite sex's stereotypical toys. Rather than having a more capacious understanding of gender in which boys can play with dolls, girls can play with trucks, that's not a sign that you have gender dysphoria. That's certainly not a sign that you're a boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa. And then in the same thing in in terms of what we want to hold up is that men and women are equal in dignity, though Mm -hmm. they are going to have different, uh, they're complementary um, gifts that they have, and that's going to impact how we relate with one another. Um, I'll right. never have morning sickness. I'll never <laughs> bear a child. I'll never nurse a child. And so there's certain things that um, my wife can do that I can't do. And a healthy society would recognize that and cherish that and structure it in a way mm-hmm. that actually responds to that reality. Our economy is entirely based on the assumption that the male body is the standard body. And that women's bodies are somehow deficient male bodies. So our economy, our labor expectations, the workplace, 
is entirely on the assumption that everyone should be working a nine to five job five days a week mm. without any kind of serious. And this is why we now see pending uh, legislation on what would family paid family leave look like uh, for mothers, for parents and how parenthood um, impacts mothers and fathers differently. I'm going to be able to go back to work uh, the day after my wife delivers a baby in a way that she won't be able to go back to work that next day. And again, like a healthy society would recognize these differences and take them seriously. Mm. Changing direction here, uh, Ryan, children. The most disturbing thing for me about your book was the, mm -hmm. the accounts you give of the way this ideology is being used by, I mean, you've already distinguished between transgender people and the activists, but the way that activists are driving this thing back before puberty and using it as a way of riding roughshod both over a child's biology and over parental rights. I wonder if you could expand that for us, for our listeners. I'll give you a little bit of personal background here. I was involved in fronting a letter on transgender policy in our local school district about two years ago. And the most terrifying thing to me about the reactions was not the hostility, but the fact that ordinary parents didn't get the significance of what was going on. Yeah. So there's a couple chapters early in the book where I just let the transgender activists um, speak in their own voice. So it's kind of like the, the chapter where people who had detransitioned tell their own stories. Um, there's a chapter that just goes through. This is what the scientists, the doctors, the policymakers who embrace a transgender worldview, think about these issues. And so we see a, a medical professor at Duke Med School saying that from a medical perspective, it's contrary to science to use chromosomes or hormones or internal reproductive organs or external genitalia or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity for the purposes of determining someone's sex. So it's a remarkable claim that everything about the physical body is irrelevant for the purposes of determining someone's sex, if the gender identity of the individual points in a different direction. And then we see cartoon characters that are being used in schools to teach children uh, this new vision of the human person. There's the gender-bred person, and then there's the gender unicorn. You know, you can Google these images and they'll pop up right away. And you can see these cartoon characters that are being used in schools to teach kids how to think about their own bodies. And it's a script, I've said before, that you know kids are being catechized according to the gender unicorn and the gender-bred person because we all need a script against which we interpret our own lives, our own experiences, our own feelings. And so a child who has feelings of gender dysphoria, a child who doesn't quite fit standard sex stereotypes, will be interpreting that not along a script of, like, I can have a more capacious understanding of gender, I can be a real boy and play with dolls, I might be a girl trapped in a boy's body. Uh, mm -hmm. My sex was merely assigned to me at birth and modern medicine can reassign it, right? That's the way more and more kids will be interpreting their own mm -hmm. stories. And then the medicine is the most shocking part because the professional associations who focus on transgender healthcare, they've promulgated a four-part standard of care uh, where the first step is social transition for kids as young as two or three or four years old, where a child that young will be given a new name, a new pronoun, a new wardrobe, access to new bathrooms and locker rooms. Uh, then at age nine, 10 or 11, uh, the child is to be administered puberty blocking drugs 
to prevent the child from going through puberty in the wrong body, as they understand it. Then at age 14, 15, or 16, the child could be administered the opposite sex's sex hormone, testosterone or estrogen, to feminize a male body or masculinize a female body. And then at age 18, they're eligible for sex reassignment surgery, uh, top surgery and or bottom surgery. In the book, I go through all the details of what this entails and how it doesn't actually reassign sex. It merely um, removes healthy body parts and then tries to cosmetically create a, a simulation of the opposite sex's body parts. And more and more kids are now being exposed to this, are now being victimized in this way. Isn't it the case, Ryan, that if a child, a prepubescent child who's confused about their gender is left to their own devices, something like between 85 and 90% of them will, will find their way back to their bodily gender. Yeah. But if you give them hormones, then it's almost 100% the other way. The puberty block. So um, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the kind of like the Bible of mental health professionals, it reports that 80 to 95% of young people with gender dysphoria and um, other gender confusion will naturally grow out of it. It will naturally resolve itself if development is allowed to continue. And so I quote this in the book. You can find the citation right there. But then there have only been a couple clinical studies of children being placed on puberty-blocking drugs. Um, and in one of them, 100% of the kids persisted in their transgender identity. So whereas normally 80 to 95% would desist, mm-hmm. the children placed on puberty blockers, 100% of them in one of the studies persisted. Wow. That's As tough. a parent, I just can't imagine experimenting on my child in that way in such a young age to give them something like puberty blockers where you don't even know the long-term medical effects. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing here is that they're not FDA-approved for treating gender dysphoria. The FDA approves puberty-blocking drugs for a condition known as precocious puberty, uh, where puberty occurs too early in the developmental process. Uh, They developed a drug to delay it to an age-appropriate stage. Mm -hmm. These drugs are now being used off-label to indefinitely delay puberty. Mm -hmm. Eight, nine, ten-year-old will have their puberty delayed, and then they will try to initiate to mimic the opposite sex's puberty Mm -hmm. by administering the opposite sex's sex hormone. And some of that's irreversible, you show in the book, like even if they later would decide, say a girl who starts taking testosterone, she's going to have some permanent results from that. Yeah, I mean, some of it's just unknown. So some of it's uh, unknown in the sense of, we have no idea what the long-term outcomes, because we've never done this before, Mm -hmm. of blocking puberty for a decade. We don't know in terms of height, weight, bone density, musculature, organ development. Uh, We just don't know what happens when you prevent a body from receiving uh, the hormones that it's supposed to receive at a certain age. And then it's fallacious to say it's reversible, because even if you can recommence biological puberty at age 14, 15, or 16, to go through a developmental process that you were supposed to go through at 10, 11, 12, five years later, isn't reversing it, right? Mm -mm. Uh, Developing five years late is not reversing the blocking of puberty. And then what we know is if, if you do have the opposite sex's hormones, this can result in all sorts of irreversible problems in terms of lost fertility, 
um, mm-hmm. ever developed in the first place because of puberty blockers, and then you receive the opposite sexes, sex hormones, you may render yourself infertile. If you've had the surgery, you may never have a functional um, sex life. There's only so much that modern medicine can do to restore people to wholeness. Um, right. They've been hurt in these ways. So what would you counsel ordinary people to do? The man, the woman in the street, Ryan, this looks... I feel so often with the sexual revolution these days, you feel like somebody standing on a beach looking at a huge wall of water hurtling towards you, and there's nowhere to run to hide. (laughs) What does the ordinary person in the street do when faced with this overwhelming radical establishment that seems to be transforming the world so fast? How do we resist that? Yeah, so I mean, one is refuse to be silenced. Because I actually think that there are many more people who do not accept some of the transgender ideology than we would imagine. Ordinary people, you know, man and woman on the street, whether they're liberal or conservative, a Democrat or Republican, mm-hmm. um, they're religious or not, they don't think that their son can become their daughter or their daughter can become their son. They don't want boys in their girls' locker rooms. They don't want their child to believe that taking the opposite sex's hormone will somehow transform their body. But everyone's afraid to say this out loud because there's strength in numbers, but no one wants to be the first person to stick their head up. Um, so I think one, one answer here is just like, don't be afraid. Don't be bullied into silence. And then second is like, actually look for support. I mean, especially if one of your children or a family member, a friend is experiencing gender dysphoria, you don't have to, um, go it alone. Uh, there are people, Dr. Paul McHugh at Johns Hopkins, um, and many of the people who have kind of like studied in his approach to psychiatry uh, will simply engage in talk therapy, how to talk with a, they'll talk with your child about why do you think you're actually a girl? Why do you think you're actually a boy? And try to uncover what the underlying cause of the gender dysphoria is and to help the child um, accept him or herself as him or herself. I'm sparing the child of monthly visits to an endocrinologist for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Which leads to a bigger question that you reveal in the book is just what is the purpose of healthcare? You, you know, you kind of contrast is it to fulfill a patient's desires or is it actual mental health? Is yeah, healthcare I'm, for social justice or is it for wellness? I mean, part of this, I mean, these are like huge philosophical debates, more or less since modernity, since the dawn of modernity, is all of nature malleable where we're to use our will to reshape nature in accordance with our desires? Or, particularly in the perspective of medicine, is it meant to bring healing and wholeness? So rather than transforming the body in accordance with the minds and the emotions, you try to help the minds and the emotions conform to reality and to recognize reality and to be comfortable with reality. Um, So do we view medicine as just what Dr. Leon Cass once called a highly trained hired syringe, right? Where, you know, this is uh, goes to the highest bidder and we'll do whatever we want with our medical techniques or is medicine a profession governed by certain norms of restoring wholeness of returning people to well-functioning, including the well-functioning of their mind and body 
to be unified and to be in accordance with the reality of their mind and body. And so there are two different visions of medicine going on here that partly inspire two different outlooks on therapy. Well, I just want to thank you for writing this book. It's been so helpful to read, and I want to recommend to our listeners, just if you want to read up on what's going on behind the scenes for this issue, if you just want to learn more about how to respond to the transgender movement and the activism that's involved in it, and to also gain more compassion for those who are truly struggling with gender dysphoria, I highly recommend Ryan Anderson's When Harry Became Sally. And we're excited to be able to give away a few copies on our website. If you head over to mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to possibly win a copy for yourself. So thanks so much, Ryan, for coming on and talking to us about this. Oh, sure. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... But there's also that element of, okay, if this happened in my church, can I put my hand on my heart and say... We'd have been supported. And opened my heart to considering what have we done? Um, how did we how did we hurt this brother and sister? There's just so many little easy ways to say this matters. You matter. It matters that this happened and what you're doing is amazing. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. says to me you're much younger than i thought and i said how old how old do i look and she said 38 no <laughs> of course you love her so, well i now think i'm going to start a new uh, minority community i'm a a 50 year old trapped <laughs> in the body of a 38 <laughs>